0: Welcome back to the Telling Lives Podcast. This week, we're going to bring you another bonus episode featuring the Telling Lives Podcast team. I'm Brian Manuel, the producer of the podcast, and with me today is Elizabeth Christian, reporter and narrator of the show. Hello. Reporter Alina Noakes. Hey, guys. And finally, Jerry Clark, who is our associate producer. Hey, everybody. We have had an incredible response for our last question and answer roundtable discussion that we had, didn't we?
1: We did. I was actually shocked.
0: Yeah, it's really cool to get all this feedback from listeners and just hearing that positive comments. Uh, We've got a lot of listener questions to go over again today because what's really cool about this format is... We put it out there, people listen, more questions come in.
1: And more clarifications.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So we're going to do some points of clarity today, and then we'll jump into uh, some of those questions that we just talked about. So we had one point of clarity that we really wanted to tackle today. Uh, We had some questions about the timeline issue with Angela's Uncle Randy finding the car at the Monad Bridge. So why don't we kind of clear up some of that, Maybe misunderstanding.
1: Okay, yes. Um, in fact, this was one of the points that Alina and I both discussed early on was the description back in 93 and when I interviewed Randy that he found the car. And by found, my interpretation of that is he's the first person who saw the car. So I don't know if it was a miscommunication on that end for me to think that it was the morning. But in fact, I did call him back. He never contacted me that the timeline was off. But uh, I did call him back to clarify after I listened back to the interview. And he did say it was the afternoon after he got out of school. He was in junior college at the time. He didn't actually find the car. So it was found in the morning. He happened up on the car that afternoon. Um, so that's why I say the clarification in the term found. Somebody else had reported seeing the car. They reported it later, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, when they saw it, they just saw a car there. Didn't think anything of it. Then that afternoon, Randy came by, and at first... He recognized that it was his niece Angela's car, but he went on to his girlfriend at the time, Jennifer's house. And then when he came back by a game warden, he believes it was a law enforcement official, a game warden was there also. And since it was still there, the hood was cold. That is when he reached out to Deborah, Angela's mother, and Nicholas, her brother, And so that's the clarification that the car was found in the morning by someone else. When he saw the car, it had already been found, but it hadn't been reported as anything unusual at that time, if that helps explain it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We want to make sure we get all that clarified, that it helps tell the story Mm -hmm. just a little bit better. Uh, Another thing that we've had questions about are people asking about is the people we've had sharing? We just had an episode where all the friends of Angela got to speak out, and we just want to reiterate that we're not we're not coloring this one way or the other. We're just reporting what those people have told us.
1: Yes, I knew episode eight was going to be a bombshell one because of the information that people had come forward and shared with us. Uh, Still, I mean, as much as we would love to say that ultimately we had a hand in solving this case in some way, none of us know what happened to Angela. All right. Um, we have no subpoena authority, no arrest power. That is the job of law enforcement. And what we shared, I thought we did the best we could to kind of share what someone remembers of being there and working with Steven right. and then what somebody had to share from Angela's fears and her points of views that she had shared with her friend and their interpretations are colored by their relationships with the people. And so it is in no way mean we agree or disagree. We are sharing the information. The other information is public record again We are not saying that that record means anyone had anything to do with it or didn't have anything to do with it. It's just the factual information that we can find from the records.
0: Yeah, and that's what reporting is all about. Correct. We're we're not saying just because someone says something, it doesn't mean we agree with it. It doesn't mean we disagree with it. We're just simply passing along what they have had to say or what the public documents have to say. Right.
1: I mean, we have had, and we and I have never and would never start encouraging student reporters to do anything illegal or deceptive to get information. Everything that we have done has been legally, either through open records that we just accessed, uh, some of it through Internet records and through uh, lawfully applied for Freedom of Information Act requests for information.
0: Let's dive into some of the listener questions that we have then. We've had several kind of come in, and some of them are specific about the case, and then some of them are just about the production of a podcast because they love the story that we're able to tell and the work that you have done to tell Angela's story. One of the big questions that have come about, and, and team, you guys feel free to jump in and, and answer any way, shape, or form, has been about the day that Larry and Ruby got married, not specifically the day, but the date of it. And they said it seems odd to them that they got married on the date that was so close to Angela's disappearance. So what do you guys have to say about that?
2: Um, I think that it was... Of course, to any listener, probably seemed pretty odd that that would be the date. But in fact, we have come to find out through public record and such that it um, they had applied for a marriage license, like many people have to do um, to get a marriage, especially in the state of Mississippi, two and a half weeks before then. So it's not really in the scheme of things very odd for them to have gotten married on that day.
1: In um, hindsight, in it hindsight. is.
2: Right. <laughs> of course, when you first listen to it without without knowing that when they apply for the marriage license, um, you would maybe think that uh, it was odd. And I think all of us probably thought it was odd for that to happen. But again, coincidental things happen all the time. And we can't really tell why or how or you know any of that kind of stuff. But um, just to know that it happens is all that matters in the scheme of things for telling the story. So um, now we know that they've applied for it two and a half weeks before then. So that's what we can leave it at.
0: Yeah, our brains kind of jumped to the the idea that they ran out that day, grabbed a license, and got married. Right. But Mississippi doesn't work that
3: way.
1: No, Mississippi uh, is different from Alabama and Florida in the uh, that regard. You have to actually have a blood test done. It takes several days. I got married in the early 90s in Mississippi, and, and I did realize that they had applied for it before. I didn't realize they had applied for it as long before, they're valid for 30 days. We have to acknowledge that we are looking at the date of their marriage with the full knowledge that Angela went missing in the early morning hours that day. The only people or person who knows what happened to Angela would know if that was odd back then at that time.
0: Right, absolutely. Uh, Another question has come across our desk that is kind of neat pertaining to this podcast. The question says, how has producing a true crime podcast developed your skills as journalists?
2: Well, I know for me personally, um, I do a lot of research outside of just journalism stuff. I do a lot of historical research for, um, for my job. But, I, I use it kind of in the same way when I'm doing a True Crime podcast. I use the same sort of skills in that you have to dig up things. You, know, you have to dig into the archives and dig into the newspapers and, and stuff like that. It's bringing in all the old sources and interviewing people you normally wouldn't have thought about interviewing. They wouldn't be like um, p- officials or whatever. They'd be people who experienced it in real time and who have like a personal connection to it and i think it's a lot the same with true crime podcasts it's just you have to tell the full story and so when you're doing that you're interviewing all sorts of people people you wouldn't have normally thought to interview people would discount them very easily um but you never know the information that people can have um so just taking in all my research skills and stuff like that it's really developed them differently to where now i think about even doing research for historical things i think about it differently and i'm like okay well maybe that's who i need to interview not that person but this other person who normally I wouldn't have thought it would have um they would not have been important but now i see them as bringing a unique perspective to the story um so for me personally that's what it's done
0: now jerry you came from a music production background and now you're producing a spoken word podcast how does that play out in your technical ability
3: well it, it's really interesting because um for the past couple of years, I've worked in audio production, recording and uh mixing vocals and music, and with this, it's really a lot of the same techniques only you're you're mixing and and dealing with a story and putting a story together. Uh, A narrative versus uh, a song so instead of three minutes you have 45 minutes and it's a lot more information and it's a lot more to deal with and it's really interesting because I'm very new to the world of journalism and as I've been able to help produce this podcast I've learned a lot about how to gather information, just the the way this field works, the rules, the legal processes involved with it. Um, so being able to sit back and produce and edit while watching uh, Elizabeth Christian and Alina gather all this information and put it together and, and tell people stories, uh, I've been able to learn a lot more and really expand on what I've known as a music producer coming into this.
0: One of the things as listeners have been listening to this, this season of work, they've noticed a trend that, uh, Elizabeth, you are not shy about bringing your faith into this and telling the story of faith uh, of people who are in Angela's life as well. Uh, how do How does your faith influence your search for justice for Angela?
1: I'm glad you asked that because early on I knew that I wanted our podcast to represent who we are uh, as individuals, as Christians, but also to represent the institution that we uh, work for and attend. So I wanted to incorporate faith. I also wanted to tell the story of the journey to Stronger Faith that this has brought the Freeman family and I have to tell you from talking to them, especially Deborah and Nicholas, who uh, and, and Miss Clydell, the people who were most strongly affected in the longest period of time, because all three of them are still living, they weren't perfect people, and they're not perfect people, and they don't pretend to be. They were very honest with me about their faith in God, but truly, how especially Miss Deborah has just gone to, you know, the depths of despair and it was calling out to God and coming back to her faith that has really allowed her to continue to come through the worst thing that can happen to any of us. And so, um, I wanted faith to be a part of it. I didn't realize how much, it would affect my faith that my faith has actually become stronger as a result of telling this young woman's story. I feel honored that I've been able to play a part in telling people who Angela Freeman was.
0: Absolutely. The last episode that we put out had an anonymous source. Yes. And it was fabulously narrated by Alina on a podcast. We call her Mary on the podcast for anonymity purposes, but the question has come to us, how do anonymous sources actually work within a journalistic podcast like this?
1: Well, I'm I'm going to back up and say I gave her the name Mary for my best friend. And so obviously she uses a different name, but she also was afraid to go on record because of her voice. People would know from her voice. So she did finally give us the uh, permission to use her information. So we'll hear. Next week. Next week. Next week, we will actually hear from her after the last episode aired. And she heard even more people have reached out to us. As you said earlier, that she just felt like it was really time to share in her own words and her own voice Much more of the story, and it's going to be hard for people to listen to it and not just feel the pain because she was Angela's best friend, and 25 years haven't dulled a lot of that pain. So, we will hear from her. Um, we're still going to call her Mary, yep, because she still lives in the area. So, but as far as anonymous sources go, so. Our podcast is a little bit different. We are independent, doing this uh, not as part of a news organization. So the rules about using anonymous sources are not the same. Ethically, we try to tell who people are, but we're not bound by the same ethical code or you know, guidelines that an employer like Gannett would have. So most news organizations have very strict guidelines about when in what kinds of situations and what kinds of stories they allow anonymity for sources. And it's usually, you know, to protect victims of certain kinds of crimes, uh, to protect people who it would put their lives in harm, people who are close to high ranking political officials, very specific and important to the greater good of society. We don't have those same kind of rules. Most true crime podcasts are put out by organizations that it's more of a narrative storytelling thing. So they don't have those same kind of rules. But for those of you who listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, you'll notice most of the people actually are going on record. It's usually unsolved cases that nobody has come to justice where people are oftentimes given the anonymity.
0: Last question for uh, this roundtable discussion today. We've only got a couple of episodes left that we're going to be producing. Maybe. Hopefully. Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. But so much stuff just keeps coming more, up. As yes, more, more people, people keep, talking. keep
1: bringing up information.
0: It's actually fantastic. But we've only got a couple more planned. We may have to go beyond that. But people are already asking... What about season two? What's coming up? What are we going to do on the next episodes of Telling Lives?
2: Honestly, at this point, we are not entirely sure about who or what will be the subject of the podcast. We know we will continue to do a podcast series. but um, We're just not sure if it will be true crime or if it will be a human interest story um, or true crime that's already been solved <laughs> so
1: that would be a lot easier <laughs> it
2: would be a lot easier a and uh, a lot less stressful and strenuous to our um i think to our minds and our ang- our nerves but yeah. um we shall see
0: it's still up in the air in other words We're, we've got a lot of options right now kind of laid out on the table
1: and there's a lot of missing people out there
0: there sure is a lot of stories to be told.
1: Can I mention something? Yeah. Before we go? Um, I, I went to, and I took a student with me last weekend. There was actually a conference in Mamou, Louisiana, of all places. Nobody listening is going to know where that is. But
0: Well, it's the, the the heart of Mardi Gras. They should know. Yes, that's it's true. The Mardi in fact, Mardi Gras.
1: I was eavesdropping a few days after, and I heard people talking about Mardi Gras there. Um Anyway, there was a conference there at the Historic and Haunted Hotel for uh, gathering people to help find out what happened to a woman who went missing in 1968. Alice Marie Reeves was her name. Her daughter is now in her 50s and is a detective. And I didn't expect many people to show up at this conference in Mamou, of all places. It was standing room only. And... They presented her story and what little information they have, and then they shared the stories of two other missing people. Um, one, a twenty-seven-year-old case, which reminded me of the Jacob Wetterling case, and on in the dark. And then the other case was a ten-year-old case of a a widow and Sunday school teacher. So all these people from very different stages and walks of life, and the founder of Texas EquiSearch was there. And talked about looking for, he worked on the search for Natalie Holloway and Kaylee Anthony. And so listening to him and some of the other people, things that they had done, techniques that they had used to go about looking for information, was fascinating to me. And we got to share a little bit about what we'd been doing, too. So there are, in one man that was there who's a detective, there are about 400 open a missing persons cases in the state of Louisiana. And I'm just thinking if you multiplied that all over the country, just how many stories out there
0: the thousands
1: that are out there to tell and share. And this has been an incredible experience. The people that have listened and shared it with other people and sh- who've shared it with other people who have sent in tips, not just to us, but who have called the detectives right. working this case, who've gotten more leads Um, so I just wanted to share that about that conference. It was interesting and maybe going on in other places in the country too, to get community members who have knowledge, um, of the history of the time and can bring forward more information.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's wind down our time today. We're going to let our listeners go for just a couple more weeks, but what can we expect on our next episode?
1: So the next episode, and we're kind of trying to go chronologically except for when we just have a lot of information come forward like we did last time. But next episode is going to cover uh, around 2000 when a new detective came on the case and the technology to do DNA came to Mississippi and smaller uh, law enforcement agencies.
0: Well, we look forward to that episode. I know our listeners are going to be looking forward to it. We hope you enjoyed our second bonus episode and roundtable discussion. Feel free to reach out to us at our email address, tellinglivespod at gmail.com, or visit our website, tellinglives.blueberry.net, and blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. That's tellinglives.blueberry.net. We look forward to having you join us on our next episode here in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye.